0: Friends, welcome to the second podcast of the New Testament and Preaching, June Intensive. In the first podcast, I previewed what we'll get up to during our week together, and I presented some basic facts about Paul's letters in the New Testament. Today in the second podcast, I will talk about some touch points of Paul's thought. My goal with this mini-lecture is to prepare you to interpret any one individual letter of Paul's with a little more confidence and insight. I can't cover each and every nook and cranny of Paul's writings, but what I can do is show you the major nodal points of his thinking. I can give you a map of the whole area so that when you are visiting specific places like, say, Philippians or Colossians, you have a lay of the whole land. You might not know the answer to some particular exegetical question, but you'll know how to think with Paul in a broader way This will, I hope, enable you to discern God's actions so as to announce them as good news in your context. As I warned in the first podcast, this second one is in some ways a riffing on or a paraphrase of The Assigned Chapter by J. Christian Becker, so I urge that you will read that chapter by the time you tune in to this podcast. I also remind you that your homework, due in our first session together on Monday, June 8, will be to turn in three questions to me by email. We will refer to these questions in our synchronous session together. The questions have to address, first of all, this chapter by Becker, second, the Book of Romans, and last of all, some matter within Paul's writings, and this last one can be widely conceived even though Paul's writings technically include only the seven authentic letters. For our purpose and for this question, you can refer to any of the letters that bear his name. So if you're looking at page 19 of the Becker chapter, the first page from the packet I sent out to you back in May, you will see an all caps section heading, apocalyptic as the basis of Paul's thought. The next sentence, first of the section then reads, quote, Jewish apocalyptic forms the basis of Paul's thought, end quote. Each of the key terms here is probably somewhat familiar to you. Jewish means of or pertaining to Judaism. Apocalyptic means of or pertaining to the apocalypse, which usually means in our common parlance, the end of the world or something like that. But these terms also require some unpacking. Apocalyptic does indeed get at the end of the world, but maybe not in quite the way we are used to thinking of it. It's not a matter of zombies and societal collapse. In fact, the word most literally means in Greek, unveiling or revelation. It means disclosing what has always been the case, but could not previously be seen. And in the case of apocalyptic writings in early Judaism, including but not limited to the New Testament, the reality that has always been the case but could not be seen previously is God's goodness and faithfulness. Sometimes in Hebrew scripture, God comes through. God delivers the children of Israel in the Exodus. God blesses and restores Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth. God saves the people through Esther's intercessions and so on. But a lot of the time, the promises of God to protect and care for Israel appear to have fallen through. Instead of God reigning, it looks from all appearances like evil powers, the very opposite of the good God, rule over this world. Instead of thriving, the people of God experience suffering and persecution. This is a huge theological challenge. And indeed, as Becker says on top page 21 The central question Apocalyptic poses is quite clear. Why is faithfulness to the God of the covenant and to the Torah rewarded with persecution and suffering? Apocalyptic, he says, is an attempt to overcome the discrepancy between the harsh realities of everyday life and the promises of God. The way that Apocalyptic writings address this challenge is to say, yes, it doesn't just look like evil powers, demonic agencies, rule over this world. That is actually the case. Even though God made the world good, it has fallen into the control of supernatural forces that seek to destroy humans and non-humans alike. Evil demonic agencies do hold sway over this whole world. This is what Beverly Gaventa is getting at with her translations from Romans chapter five with sin and death capitalized as if they are proper names. This is a quote from her page 37 death. That's capital D death ruled as a king from Adam until Moses. Sin and death aren't just human actions or experiences for Paul. Paul, For him, they are actors. They are powers. They are like the red dragon of Revelation chapter 12, a vast enemy of God that seeks to destroy God's people. Or Revelation's talk of the beast who comes up from the bottomless pit in chapter 11. Notice that these powers, the dragon and the beast, both experience significant success. The beast kills the two witnesses. Chapter 11. The dragon chases the woman and her son and forces them to flee. Both the beast and the dragon are said to make war against the saints. So, in that situation of giant evil powers making war against the people of God, apocalypse, like I said, refers to disclosure the disclosure of God's faithfulness. Apocalypse names the unveiling of God's goodness after all. In the face of evil and opposition, God comes through on promise. This is the topic of Becker's first section, which he has titled, The Faithfulness and Vindication of God. The apocalypse of God is God's self-vindication. As Becker says on page 22, for Paul... Jesus Christ is the revelation of the Amen of God. This theme can also help us to understand the book of Romans in particular. Beverly Gaventa says Romans one sixteen is the thesis statement of the entire letter, but we must read it together with the verse that follows it. Here I'm quoting, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... That is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. End quote. Another way to get at what's at stake with Romans chapter one, verse 17, would be to say, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness, which is to say the faithfulness of God is being revealed closed. In this good news, God comes through on the promises God has made. God is showing in this good news that God is faithful, even though this world looks like just the opposite. Becker also talks about dualism. This is actually his third section heading, so I'm skipping ahead. We'll come back to what universalism entails momentarily. But dualism on page 27 is a prominent apocalyptic motif. It describes the light and dark, oppositional, that conflictual quality of apocalyptic writings, which we can see throughout the book of Revelation. But it also describes a contrast between the present and the future. It's not just the depiction of good and evil, but also of now and not yet. Present world, is as Paul puts it in galatians one four quote, the present evil age end quote, and the age to come is the kingdom of God. This is what Becker is getting at when he speaks of the motif of dualism expressing the antithesis between the present and future world, that is the enmity between the po- evil powers of the world and the representatives of the kingdom of God to come in Jewish expectation, as I've said previously. The resurrection is the definitive end-time event. If you think about where the general resurrection takes place in the book of Revelation, observe that it's in chapter 20, close to the end. The sea gives up its dead, and death and Hades give up the dead that were in them, and all are judged at the great white throne. Or again, thinking back to the book of Daniel, it's only in chapter 12, the final chapter, after all the wars and struggles and kingdoms of the end-times, that the book says, quote, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. End quote. Resurrection is a Jewish end time belief. Resurrection takes place at the end of the of this world. It is the first act of the new creation, the inaugural event of the kingdom of God. So when Paul speaks of the resurrection from the dead as he does right away in Romans in chapter one, verse four, he's referring to an end time event. Jesus' resurrection, the raising from the dead of one isolated individual, is for Paul, simply the odd out of place start to a huge cosmic upheaval. Jesus' resurrection is the first tip of the tidal wave that's about to crash against the shore of this world. That's why Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits from the dead, as he does in 1 Corinthians 15:20. Jesus' resurrection is the first installment of the harvest that must include all the dead. Becker's section on imminence covers this aspect of Paul's thinking. On page 32, he says, "Whenever Paul mentions the resurrection, he employs apocalyptic language. Resurrection terminology can be understood only in terms of the apocalyptic hope of the universal resurrection of the dead, an event that will coincide with the manifestation of God's full glory. Paul proclaims the, ne- the necessary connection between the resurrection of Christ and the final resurrection of the dead. Accordingly, Paul presents Christ as the firstfruits of those who are asleep or, this is from Romans 8, 29, The firstborn among many kindred to come. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is of a piece with the general resurrection, and both belong to the very last stage of history. Because of this, Paul expected the imminent end of the world. God's self vindication has begun in the good news that Paul proclaims. And Paul thought that God would soon bring it to completion. There are glimpses of this intense hope throughout his writings. In his earliest letter, 1 Thessalonians, he seems to think that he himself will live to experience the return of Christ. In chapter four, verse 15 of that book, he says that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will will by no means precede those who have died. We who are alive, In Romans 13, 12, he writes, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about the impending crisis. And he says, the appointed time has grown short. The present form of this world is passing away. Paul is apocalyptic in the sense that he anticipates the imminent end of the world, probably within his lifetime. In Psalm Paul is an apocalyptic thinker uh, in that he sees this present world ruled over by demonic powers, but he is confident that the future world of God is coming soon, and God will prove God's goodness and faithfulness. Indeed, Paul believes that God's self-vindication has begun. The resurrection of all humans is already underway in the resurrection of this one unique man, God's son, Jesus Christ. Finally, as Becker writes at top of page 25, the theme of God's faithfulness and self-vindication is closely related to the apocalyptic motif of the universal reign of God. Universalism, I'm still quoting, signifies the depth and cosmic breadth of the vindication of God as the vindication of all creation. God's saving work of defeating the evil powers and of remaking the world will include all creatures. It is a universal vision, as we will see, and perhaps even universalist, in the sense that we are more used to hearing about as Christians, that all humans and all creatures will experience God's resurrecting and recreating work. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, creation itself be set free from its bondage to decay. So by way of review, in this episode I raised a few touch points of Paul's thought to your attention. In concert with the reading from J. Christian Becker, I spoke about the apocalyptic basis of Paul's thought, especially his centeredness on the faithfulness and vindication of God his dualistic worldview, and his resurrection-infused expectation of the imminent end of the world, and lastly, his universalism. That's all for this podcast. In our next third installment, I will begin to speak more specifically and with a particular eye on Goventa's chapter that I signed about the book of Romans.